looked at love, and this week we are going to look at joy, unto us joy. But before I go any further, let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the time you have given us to come and open your word. We thank you for the time that you've given us already this morning to rehearse your truth and song. Thank you for giving folks the abilities and talents to lead us in worship. And God, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth. God, not just more information, but for transformation know the likeness of Jesus. So God, I pray that as we bow our heads this morning, you find us open and ready to receive from you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you? behind you, beside you, that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If there is a single word that can capture what Christmas is all about... I think that word is joy. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, joy is consistently the mark both individually of the believer and the mark of the church corporately. And Scripture shows us that as we live, we were created to have joy as the foundational thing about us. In fact, in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, it says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So joy is a quality, it's a person, not simply an emotion, but joy is grounded upon God Himself and His presence. Joy, therefore, is a reality in spite of our circumstances. And I want us to look closer at joy through the Christmas story and maybe uh, the perspective of joy from God and His Son Jesus. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, a familiar passage of the Christmas story. A Christmas story has been read all over the place, um, from Charlie Brown's Christmas, all through pop culture. Uh, But this morning I want us to look at it from God's perspective. So if you remember in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we find what has already happened. And while they were there, Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, and the time came for her baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And we know that all that has taken place. And so I want to read the next 13 verses of the Christmas story, but I want to read it in a different way, and I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to close your eyes as I read. And not just close your eyes to sleep, but to close your eyes to put yourself in the story. So don't look around. Don't look on the screen. As best you can, put yourself in the story. Think about the characters, the setting, the smells, the sounds, what's going on in the culture What had been taking place? Consider the shepherds. Put yourself in their place. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. You can open your eyes. Welcome back to Hilton Head. Three aspects of joy that I want to look at this morning. And the first one is a question. How does God define and demonstrate joy? Verse 10 and 11 says this, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. How do we look at life? What's our perspective? What's the lens that we look through on a daily basis? Some of us look through life through the lens of worry. Some of us look at the life at life through the lens of pessimism. I'll never get that done. It'll be that bad. Some of us look at life through optimism. It's raining outside, but it's a gorgeous day. Some of us look at life through fear, anxiety. What would it look like for us, the church, to look at life through the lens of joy? And I want us to consider looking at life through the lens of God's joy, from His perspective. Now, I want to ask a rhetorical question, so don't feel the need to answer out loud. But if I were to ask you to write down the top ten things that gave you pleasure, what would they be? What brings you pleasure? If you look back at the end of a day and you said, man, I had a great day. What would describe it? What brings you pleasure? I'll tell you some of mine. I love a good steak off the grill. I love a good movie. A good book brings me pleasure. Laughter brings me pleasure. My family, friends, traveling, camping. Laying in a hammock on a cool day brings me pleasure. What brings you pleasure? Christmas brings me pleasure. The smells of Christmas, the foods of Christmas, the lights of Christmas, the songs of Christmas, the gifts of Christmas, Christmas parties like tonight. These are some things that bring me pleasure. 
And why am I talking about pleasure? Because here's what I want us to understand. That this magnificent story that we've been talking about for the past three weeks, in fact, for the past 2,000 years, the story of Jesus coming to earth really is connected to the pleasure that's in the heart of God. And when you get that, it changes the way you think about this story. So think about Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I want to look at this passage, a few verses of this this chapter, specifically one. And think about this passage when you think about God's pleasure in sending Jesus. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us to turn to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased, God's pleasure, to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, we will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will set it, uh, we will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. So you have this perspective of God's joy. Verse 10 says, The Lord was pleased. To crush him, putting him to grief. God's pleasure and Jesus' grief at Christmas. It's a radical phrase. It's a phrase that should stop us in our tracks and say, What? How? Why? If you're a parent, think with me for the moment. Think of the heart you have for your children. You know you have fear for your children in the sense that you don't want them to get hurt. You want to protect them from danger. You repeat those warnings over and over and over, and every time they're, they're received with this eye-rolling of, yeah, I get it, I get it. But you say it because you want them to be protected. You, you want them to, to remove all distractions so that they can clearly hear from the Lord. You pray that their lives will be free from too much difficulty. And you would never want anything like what is being described in Isaiah 53 to happen to one of your children. That's the heart of, our, of being a parent. So you have to look at this passage, and you have to be asking what could be so powerful, so motivating in the heart of God that he would be willing, even finding pleasure and joy, to subject his son to this horrible thing. What could be in the heart of God that would allow him to do that to his son? And the answer is this. Love. 
magnificent, faithful, joyous, redeeming love for each one of us. And how do we know that? John 3.16, that God loved us so much that he found pleasure in sending Jesus to us so that we could believe in him and believe of his work on the cross, that whoever believed in him would never perish but have everlasting life. God looked at this broken world. He looked in our broken lives, separated relationship that we were intended to have from the very beginning. And he said, I'm not going to leave you in that state. I'm going to find pleasure in restoring that relationship. And how I'm going to do that is I'm going to send my son to be crushed. That's love. God so loved the world that he gave. And God doesn't find pleasure in those particular moments of the suffering and the pain of his son. God finds pleasure and joy in the suffering's result. God loved us this much that he would be willing to subject his son to the unthinkable things. Why? Because the result of Christ's suffering restored us to the relationship of of God. Yesterday I was finishing up this point, reviewing it. And a friend of mine called about the same time I was finishing up the point about the importance of talking about Jesus and his willingness to suffer, to be obedient and move on our behalf. And this friend reminded me of Charles Spurgeon's message entitled Jesus Christ Himself. And listen to what Spurgeon says in a sermon. A sermon without Jesus in in it is savorless, and worthless to God's tried saints, and they soon seek other food. The more of Christ in our testimony, the more light of, and life and power to save. To this day, I have never heard anybody against whom the complaint was urged that he preached Christ too much, too often, too earnestly, or too joyfully. I never recollect seeing a single Christian man coming out of a congregation with a sorrowful face saying he extolled the Redeemer too highly, He grossly exaggerated the praises of our Savior. No theme so moves the heart, so arouses the conscience, so satisfies the desires, and so calms the fears. God forbid we should ever fail to preach Jesus himself. There is no fear of exhausting the subject, nor of our driving away hearers. For his words are still true. I, if I be lifted up, will draw men unto me. We preach Christ. We lift Christ up because of the joy we have found in his suffering. Because in the difficulties of life, or as we look at the world around us we live in, we can begin to ask, where is God? Where is his love? And where in the world is his joy? We have no other answer than Jesus Christ himself. Let me read from you for you Romans chapter 8 from, from Paul. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the place we run to, not only because it is an example, an expression of God's magnificent love for us, but it's also... It's an argument for God's continued presence and joy. Think about this just for a second. 
When Christ came to earth, he physically suffered every day of his life. And he also suffered emotionally every day of his life. When at the the crescendo, at the point where he's on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering of Jesus. And Paul's argument in Romans 8 is this. If God would subject his son Christ willingly to give us Christ in this way, will he not also give us everything we need today? Paul argues that you and I are guaranteed that God will be faithful to us. He will be with us and in us and for us and meet all of our needs as you walk through this life toward eternity. Our guarantee is the crushing grief of Jesus on the cross. And so in those moments, when it doesn't seem like God is hearing you, or that God is acquainted with your own grief, or when you begin looking at that person's life and said, I wish I had that life. Their life seemed to be so much easier than mine. Or you hear the enemy start to whisper, where is God now? What about that joy? I have a solid and joyous argument. I turn to Isaiah chapter 53. And I turn to Romans chapter 8 verse 31. And I say... If with joy and pleasure God would do this to his one and only son, he will, not, he will not leave me defenseless today. He is with me. That's the plan from day one that this little baby was destined to die. And the cross isn't a moment of defeat. The cross is not an interruption. The cross of Jesus Christ was the plan. And that cruel death, life would be given to many, including us. So that was God's plan. Well, what did Jesus think of this plan? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had joy in mind as well as he went to the cross. Jesus fixed his eyes on the cross on the joy of the cross. When we fix something, what are we really doing? Uh, We're making it right, right? And husbands, sometimes when we get asked to fix something, what do we do? We get our tool belt out. We tell everybody, stand back. I'm going to fix it. We let everyone know we're going to make it right. And by the way, just as a side note, wives, I read something somewhere that said if your husband says he's going to fix something, there's no need to remind him every six months about it. (laughs) Wives, as a little trick, a little side note, a little Christmas gift, I heard that if you want your husband to fix something immediately, act like you're going to fix it. (laughs) When When we fix something... When we fix something, what are we doing? We're we're making it right. This phrase fixing in Hebrews also carries with it uh, in the Greek this idea uh, of running and a race and an athlete, that that the athlete would fix their eyes on the finish line. And they fix their eyes on the, the finished product. They fix their eyes on the result. 
And the minute the Greek runner would fix his eyes off of the finish line, his speed would slow down, his focus would slow down. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the exact same thing, that, we, that Jesus fixed his eyes. He fixed his eyes on making it right. He fixed his eyes on the result of the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This was the joy of Jesus, knowing that you and I could experience forgiveness of sin and restored to a right relationship with God. He fixed his eyes, knowing he could make it right, and that was the joy set before him. Psalm 92.4 You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you have done. Isaiah 61.10 from the New Living Translation I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. God's perspective and pleasure of joy fulfilled in His Son Jesus who had a perspective and fixed outcome of joy as well. So here's the challenge for this first point. Every time you see, sing, or say the word joy this Christmas, I want you to connect it back to God's perspective and Jesus' obedience to make our joy possible. It leads us to our second point, is that joy equals obedience, and obedience equals joy. Notice verse 15 says, When the angels had gone away from them, talking about the shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds heard the truth of God, and they obey and respond, Let us go. Now, one of the greatest joys as a parent, and I think you can relate to this, is when your children obey you. The third book of John, chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in truth. The translation of that verse is this, I have no greater joy that I am hearing that my children are habitually ordering their lives and behavior in the sphere of truth. There's no greater joy than habitually ordering our behavior in the sphere of truth. There is something about our two sons, Rivers and Wells, hearing what Penny and I say and them responding to it in obedience. Can any parent relate to that? Whether it's in small things or big things, obedience brings the parents joy. The shepherds accepted what the angels told them as the truth of God and responded in the same way that it brings a parent joy to their heart when the obedience happens. 
The opposite is true. Disobedience brings a parent heartache. The original language with the shepherds says that they didn't go, they didn't obey, they didn't respond out of doubt. They responded out of conviction of what they had heard, what they knew to be true. And notice from this passage, when they were invited to Bethlehem to see this newborn Messiah, they didn't worry about who was going to watch the sheep. They didn't get bogged down in this debates about how to get there. When the shepherds heard the news, they didn't seek out religious professionals. They didn't try to validate the angel's story. They, don't do, they didn't do what we do in our culture when we hear things. We say, uh, the angels, we hear this noise, we, we check our phones. We check our calendars, text messages, emails, social media to find out who else is going to go. We do all this. The shepherds heard and responded. And I'm finding in our culture, even in our Christian cultures, we hear, then we negotiate, we analyze. We figure out what's it going to be in for us. How's it going to affect us? And then we decide, okay, I'll obey. I think there's a simplicity message in Luke chapter 2 when the shepherds heard the truth from the angels and they responded. Now think about if the shepherds never left the field. If they said, that was really awesome. That was a lot of angels. And they just stayed in the field. Because they thought the trip was going to be too hard, too long, too much of a burden. Maybe it was even too far-fetched. I have met people that say or act like obedience to God is a burden. Now, they don't say those exact words or even say it out loud, but it's there. And so let me ask this morning, what are your thoughts about obedience? Burdensome or joy? God was giving the shepherds an extraordinary in what was the ordinary but they were going to have to experience it through obedience. They couldn't experience it by staying in the field. And the same needs to be true with us. I'm convinced that the depth of our joy will be revealed in the eagerness of our obedience. Many of us have heard this verse, said this verse, or even have this verse hanging in our house. And it says this, the joy of the Lord will be my strength. Where does that come from? It comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And here's the background. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, 
Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have, have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now in this passage, Ezra is explaining the word of God. The people's first response was one of conviction and grief over their sins. And Ezra says the day of atonement has come. Forgiveness is yours. Celebrate. The word of God brings conviction and leads to repentance, but it also brings us joy. The same word that wounds also heals. Jeremiah 15, 16 says this, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name. So I have to ask this question. Because it seems like the appropriate question, but I also realize that may be a really out there question when you're considering Christmas and joy. How many of you have a Bible? How many of you read from that Bible? And how many of you follow what that Bible says to you? The question is, how do you know if you're being obedient? When reading, understanding, and obeying God's word, there is a sense of peace and a sense of joy. And God has put in us joy and satisfaction when we hear and respond to him. How can we know the desires God has for us in our lives if we don't read his word? If we don't understand what he wants, what he desires? This is what I've found to be true. Joy in the word of God brings strength to obey. And without joy in the word of God, there is weakness which leads to disobedience. Peace and joy disappear when disobedience is present. I'm going to say that again. Peace and joy disappear when disobedience to God is present. And so obedience is this pathway to wisdom and to blessing and to peace and to joy. I believe a life well lived is one in which our eyes are fixed upon the Lord, our ears are attentive to the quiet voice of the Holy Spirit, and our hearts feast on the Word of God. This will produce a life full of joy. Our final point is this. We have a story of joy to all. Notice verse 20 of the Christmas story. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. How do you express joy? Would you do me a favor and just turn to the person beside you and give them your best expression of joy? Some of y'all probably had an argument on the way into church this morning, and that was a really difficult exercise. We all know people. We've been around people. 
in which joy was just all over them, in them and coming out of them. I'm not talking about the fake imposter smile, everything's happy joy. I'm talking about the content and confidence of Jesus joy that you recognize in people, that's been expressed. The Hebrew word for joy has expression attached to it. It could be an expression in quiet and humble appreciation and then wells up within you this joy to the Lord. But there's also joy that's expressed in dancing and singing like Isaiah 55. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth in shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Joy is interior, but it's expressed exteriorly. That's a word these days, exteriorly. It's expressed in our patience. It's expressed in our hurts, our disappointments. Joy is expressed in our serving and our giving. It's expressed in our rest, our dependence. And there is a world out there, outside these walls, that is dying to see the joy of the Lord in the lives of people who follow Jesus. And you and I, as believers, have the opportunity to show the content and confidence of where our joy resides. Jesus says, Matthew 10, 18, Freely you received, freely give. The shepherds came in Luke chapter 2 and found the baby Jesus, just like the angel said. You got Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. This Greek word, uh, found in verse 16 means to find after a search and it reminds me of jeremiah 29 13 and 14 from the message when it says when you come looking for me says god you'll find me yes when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else i'll make sure you won't be disappointed god's decree the shepherds come to the manger They see Mary and Joseph, and they see Jesus, and they were not disappointed, and neither will we be. For unto us, you shepherds, Israel, all of us, is born a Savior. And when we pursue the joy of Jesus, he will be found, decrees the Lord. We cannot express genuine joy or share Christ's joy without first having the experience joy through our surrender to the gospel of Jesus. I want to take you back somewhere. We started out. I want to take you back to the manger. Can you imagine the shepherds coming in, seeing Mary and Joseph? And we have no reason to think and no reason not to think that the shepherds started just telling their story to Joseph and Mary. And then when they could kind of work a word in, I'm sure Mary and Joseph said, that ain't nothing, let me tell you my story. And they shared their joy and their experience of Jesus. And notice verse 19. It's almost as if Mary pulls away and she says, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
all these things, the angels, the virgin birth, the Messiah, right in front of her, all this personal to her. And then notice the shepherds. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the Christ child. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as been told to them. I believe both Mary's and the shepherds' response is crucial. That there is a personal moment of pondering, of thanking God, being wowed and in awe of all that God has done for us in Jesus. And then we share and express that truth of what God's done for us, just like the shepherds. Because experienced truth can't help be shared. Received joy will be given away. I want to close with a few questions. Do you have the godly perspective of joy? What lens are you looking at life through? Jesus fixed his eyes on the joy set before him, the end result. The suffering of Jesus is the basis of our joy. Second question is this, is the joy of the Lord leading you to obedience? Obedience is like the secret ingredient to experiencing joy. Joy equals obedience. Obedience equals joy. Can you hear God say, there brings me no greater joy than to see Matthew habitually ordering his lives in the truth. Can God say that about you, your Heavenly Father? And finally this, is joy being expressed in and through you? There are people who need to see and experience the expressed joy of Jesus in our lives. And so I pray that God would grant us a greater excitement to share that truth. Luke 2.10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this truth. God, in so many ways, it's foreign for us to think about your perspective of joy, that there was pleasure in sending your Son to be crushed on our behalf. And in so many ways, it's foreign for us to, to see Jesus have joy as he went to the cross on our behalf. God, I thank you for giving us a right perspective of what it means to have joy, which is a restored relationship with you. God, may that joy produce in us a desire, a longing, an excitement, pleasure in obeying you. And God, may we express joy to so many who need to know the truth of this season. Help us with all that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.